Take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Before we get started, I thought we might go into the seminary classroom for just a few moments and discuss the subject of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. I'm firmly convinced that we should approach the study of the Bible with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Now, don't freak out. I am going to explain what all that means. A hermeneutic, the noun in that sentence, I believe we should approach the Bible with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is simply defined as a method or theory of interpretation. A method or theory of interpretation. It's not a biblical word per se, but it is often used when talking about the interpretation of the Bible. It's really just a fancy word describing the method theologians use to decide what a text means. Every student of the Bible has a hermeneutic. We just don't all have the same hermeneutic. Now, when we say that we believe in a literal hermeneutic, we mean that the words have literal meanings and God inspired the words to be understood as they read. We should take these words in their literal sense unless the author tells us otherwise. Now, that does happen in Scripture, like when an author is struggling for words and says, I saw something like, John does this often in the book of Revelation, then the language tells us clearly that there is symbolism there and there's something behind the symbol, but John didn't know exactly what it was that he saw. Otherwise, though, we should take a text as it reads. When we say we believe in a grammatical hermeneutic, we intend to say that we believe the actual language used in Scripture is sufficient to share the message that God wants us to know. Words actually do have meaning. Despite what our modern society would have us to believe, words actually do have meaning, and God is not unable to express Himself through the use of words. Abner Chow writes this, quote, Grammatical hermeneutics argues that language not only adequately conveys the author's intent, but it does so with precision. End quote. Amen. That's it. That's exactly what God did. He told us what He wanted us to know with precision. Now, that does not mean we do not recognize various figures of speech that biblical writers sometimes employ. Those are part of legitimate grammar. That's part of literature. If a passage contains a metaphor or a simile or an allegory, we interpret that passage as a metaphor or a simile or an allegory. In other words, down here we might say in the middle of the summer, it's hotter than fire out there. Well, we recognize that it's not literally hotter than fire out there or nobody would be able to go out there, right? That's an exaggeration. The Bible does occasionally use those types of phrases. And interestingly, the Bible uses humor, sarcasm, irony. We have to recognize those things. But language means what it means. 
And so we should take it as it is. Even if it's a, a metaphor, we should interpret it as a metaphor. So when we say we believe in a historical hermeneutic, we mean to say that we interpret a passage in its original setting, understanding both who wrote the text and to whom the text was written. In other words, if something is written to Abraham specifically, that does not necessarily guarantee me and you the promise that Abraham received. Now, many of Abraham's promises we do receive. That's not what I mean. But if God says, I guarantee you a Big Mac tomorrow, He's not telling everybody they get a Big Mac tomorrow, right? This also includes biblical chronology, when an event happened. Where are we at in the book of Ezekiel? We are not before the flood, we are after the flood. We are not after the coming of Christ, we are before the coming of Christ. That matters when you begin to interpret a passage, where it falls in the biblical timeline. So we believe in a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. This hermeneutic is not some far-fetchedly contrived system. My computer hated the word fetchedly, but I thought it was such a good word, so I thought I would use it. This hermeneutic is not some far-fetchedly contrived system by which we can make the Bible say what we want it to say. It's actually the very opposite of that. A literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic forces us to put away our preconceived ideas and submit to the Bible's meaning as God originally inspired it to be written. And just for the record, that's the same hermeneutic that we all use when we read the sports page or the evening news. This is, this is common. Uh, uh, Abner Chow again writes, quote, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics make sense and it's reasonable. It's the way we read our newspapers, books, paychecks, contracts, and laws. This is how communication works. It's just common sense, end quote. By the way, Sunday I used the word exegesis in my sermon, and I was questioned about it afterwards. I, I should have done a better job at defining that term. We have mentioned it a number of times here, but... I use that term in my regular language, and I know not all of you do. Exegesis, in layman's terms, simply means drawing the meaning out of the text. Reading the text, drawing the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis, on the other hand, means inserting your own thoughts into the text in order to make the text say something it doesn't say. Just to be clear, we want to be doing exegesis, not eisegesis. Now that may seem like a bit of a sermonology lesson that belongs in a seminary classroom, it's certainly not a Wednesday night Bible study, but I share all that to stress that we plan to take Ezekiel 36, 1 through 15, exactly as it's written, while trying to make sure our interpretation harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. One more statement on the interpretation of the Bible before we jump into this rich text. John MacArthur in his book, Expository Preaching, writes this, quote, Let these principles expose the meaning of a passage as a person follows the prescribed rules in playing a game. Exegesis, drawing the meaning out of the text. Exegesis, then, is the application of hermeneutical principles to decide what a text says and means 
in its own historical, theological, contextual, literary, and cultural setting, the meaning thus obtained will be in agreement with other related scriptures, end quote. Right, if we get the text here right, it will harmonize with other scriptures on the same subject. That's a lot of thinking, but Brian had to teach me that this afternoon. Really, those are things every Bible student should practice, even if we don't know all of the jargon. The Bible is literature. I know we don't often think about Scripture that way, but it's a book. You don't open where the red fern grows to page 183, drop down to the third paragraph, read one sentence, and think you know what that book is about. And you can't do that with the Bible either. The Bible is literature. The difference between the Bible and every other book that's ever been written is the Bible is 100% accurate, unlike every other book that has ever been written. So took all that away, Lord willing, we'll circle back to it at the end, and hopefully you'll see the relevance of those 10 minutes of your life when we're finished this evening. So last week we looked at chapter 35, which contained a prophecy against the country of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Their long-standing mistreatment of Israel, the, the seizing of the land by the Edomites, resulted in God's judgment on them. In fact, God says they would not be inhabited. Even looking forward to the kingdom age, chapter 35 verse 14 says to Edom, Thus says the Lord God, While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. The whole earth is going to rejoice except one country, Edom. So while the entire globe is basking in the kingdom blessings, while Jesus sits on David's throne, ruling over the world in righteousness, Edom will lay desolate. And again, this is all the result of their mistreatment of God's people, their near kin, Israel. And I mentioned last week that chapters 35 and chapter 36, 1 through 15, were essentially two parts of the same prop, uh, prophecy. Chapter 35, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Now look at ver chapter 36, verse 1, And you, Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. So there's this, there's this contrast between what God says to Edom in chapter 35 and what He says to Israel in chapter 36. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this evening. One is a message against a country. The other is a message to a country. The first that we looked at last week was a message of condemnation. The one that we will look at this evening is a message of promised blessing. You can see the contrast. Chapter 35 is written to the persistent enemy of God's people. Chapter 36 is written to God's chosen people, Israel. Just so you might, or just as you might expect, there's a completely different intent between those two groups. The title this evening is Restoration to the Land. And in this text, God promises that He will act in retribution towards the enemies of the people of God and restore Israel to the promised land. So let's read here the first five verses. Ezekiel 36. 
And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh, thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate places and the deserted cities which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. So immediately you see that, that contrast. Chapter 35, set your face against Mount Seir. Chapter 36, say this to the mountains of Israel. It's not These verses we've read here are to the mountains of Israel, but they're still about the nations and what the nations have done here. Now Ezekiel is to speak these words, You, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. But make no mistake, these are the words of Yahweh Himself, the covenant-keeping God. Notice verse, verse 1, Because the enemy said of you... So God is issuing these promises in this text because of the mistreatment of Israel by her enemies, because the enemy said of you. It's the law of retribution. I mentioned that last week, Exodus 21, an eye for an eye. These enemies of Israel wished certain evils upon the Jews, and now they are going to get those evils back on themselves. Again, God is issuing these promises because of the mistreatment of Israel. This is a response by God to the mistreatment of Israel. Notice all of the therefores in this passage. That's how you know it's a response. Verse 3, therefore prophesy. Verse 4, therefore, O mountains of Israel. Verse 5, therefore, thus says the Lord God. Verse 6, Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Verse 7, therefore, thus says the Lord God. Verse 14, therefore, you shall no longer devour people. Six times in this passage, God uses the word therefore, which is a response. Someone did this, therefore, God says this. Six times in this passage, God says He is doing something because one of the one of Israel's enemies had mistreated them. At least that's primarily what's going on here in this text. Verse 2 gives us some insight. It says, Because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession, therefore prophesy and say this. The nations around Jerusalem had, had seized her land, declaring that the promised land that God gave to Israel... The descendants of Jacob, the twelve tribes, they declared that the promised land was their possession and so they 
took it for themselves. Now, that's called stealing. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, but they did that anyway. And because of that, God then speaks to Israel. He says here, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. So the promises in this text we are looking at this evening are God's response to the overreach of Israel's neighbors. The overreach of Israel's neighbors in taking from her when she was being attacked. The text says, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. This, there's not a square inch of Israel not included here. It's the mountains, the hills, the ravines, the valleys, the desolate wastes, the des uh, deserted cities. It's everywhere. It's the entire nation. And God says, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. So Edom may have had a leading role, but it was not Edom acting alone in all of this. It was the rest of the nations as well. Surely I've spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. You may recall last week I mentioned that some commentators believe that chapter 35 is not only directed to Edom, even though she's the only nation named there, but that Edom represented all of Israel's enemies. And it's based on that verse right there, the fact that God is uttering these words to the rest of the nations and all Edom. Maybe that's right. I don't know. I, I, it, it makes sense, but I'll just leave that to your own literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Verse 6, Therefore, See, this is, this is, the nations did this, so God says this. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But God begins here then explaining what He's going to do in response to the nation's mistreatment of Israel. This concerns, again, the, the mountains, the hills, the ravines, the valleys, everywhere. Every square inch of the land is contained in that description. Now God's wrath up to this point has been poured out on Israel through Assyria and Babylon. Now, I'm, I'm not speaking about in Genesis. We know that like God poured out His wrath through the flood. He poured out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. But I mean, in the book of Ezekiel up to this point, God's wrath has been poured out on Israel through Assyria and Babylon. They were the tools of, the, of God's wrath. But here, the wrath of God is directed at the nation the enemies of God and His people. And, and in fact, I don't know if you caught it, I tried to stress it when I read through it, 
God attaches an oath here. Notice, He says, I swear. That's the words of Yahweh here. I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. Look, Israel's neighbors that had had leapt on her after she had been destroyed, seizing her land, taking it as their own, they are going to pay for what they have done. Warren Wiersbe writes this, quote, Instead of assisting the Jews, which is what you would have expected from Jacob's brother Esau, right? But instead of assisting the Jews, the neighbors had ridiculed them and even helped the Babylonians loot the city of Jerusalem. End quote. That's exactly what is happening. And that's precisely what God is going to judge them for. All right, let's move on. Verse 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply, multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let people walk on you, speaking to the land, I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. So God is here actually speaking to the land itself. I I don't know if you caught that. And God promises a time of abundance in the land, vegetation and flocks. In fact, God says down there that this will be a time in which He will do more good to them than ever before. That's amazing. That's significant because the land thrived. Under Solomon. If you go back and read when Solomon was reigning, the land thrived and they were above all of the nations. They had foreigners coming to them at that time, paying homage. But what God describes here is even beyond the reign of Solomon. I think the previous chapter referred to this time as the time in which the whole earth rejoices, but we'll get back to that later. Notice. What it says, vegetation will just blossom everywhere. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they shall soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and and you shall be tilled and sown. So luscious vegetation is going to blossom everywhere. Verse 10, God says that people and animals will inhabit and thrive in the entire land. Notice, I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast. And they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times. Here we go again. And will do more good to you than ever before. Then look at what God says 
to the land in verse 12. I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and you shall no longer bereave them of children. They were going to be restored. They were going to populate the land in massive numbers as the sand that is on the seashore, we might say. Charles Feinberg describes that time in Israel as productive, populated, and peaceful. That's, that's precisely what we see here in this text. What's the purpose? Why, why is God doing this? Why is, why is He going to populate the land and do all of these things? It says again in verse 11, same thing we've been seeing all the way through this book. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That was God's purpose in judgment. You will know that I am Yahweh. And now that is going to be God's purpose in restoration. You will know that I am Yahweh. All right, let's finish out the study of the text itself. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, to the land... You devour people, and you bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall no longer devour people, and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations. And you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord. So again, this is to the land. It doesn't make sense if you don't know that, because it talks about people walking on them and them bereaving Israel of children. So this is speaking to the land itself. The land of Israel was accused of devouring the people and bereaving them of their children. This is a false charge by the nations, and God is going to clear them of this. In fact, God points to a time in which this would not happen. There, there is a time promised in the future in which the land will not hear any more the reproach of the nations. And you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord. By the way, this is the language of permanence. This is going to happen, then there's going to be no end to this. This describes a setting that would remain. Well, there's a lot more in this chapter. I look forward to Brian's study next week. I have high expectations. But we're going to stop there this evening, and I've got somewhat of a lengthy conclusion. So don't look at your watch thinking, wow, he did well. Because you might not be saying that here in just a few moments. Now the text that we've looked at this evening is actually simple. It's straightforward. It's easy to understand. In fact, most of you could get it after one reading, maybe two. But what are we to make of it then? I mean, that's why, why are we stopping here? Why don't we just go on? Well, I think there's some things we can nail down from our study. First, God did not promise this land to Edom. He did not promise this land to those surrounding nations over there. This land was promised to Israel, literal, national Israel. And this land was going to be their possession forever. In the Abrahamic covenant, here's what God promised Abraham. He told him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I read all the way through verse 3 because I want to be crystal clear here. All nations, every ethnicity is blessed through Abraham because of Jesus. That is abundantly clear. And it was God's plan from the very beginning. We're not on plan B. This was always God's plan. But there was a promise to make one particular nation that descended from Abraham great. He says, I will make your name great. I will make of you a great nation. Singular, a great nation. And just so we're all on the same page, that's not the United States. We like to take the promises of Scripture and apply them to the United States. This is a promise to Israel, ethnic Israel. And notice there was a land associated with that people. There is a land that he was to go to. In the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 13, here's what God told Abraham. Genesis 13, 14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Now the enemies of God in Ezekiel 36, Edom and the other nations, they fought against this right here. God promised this land to Israel and those nations fought against this promise and made themselves thus the enemies of God. They literally refused to believe God's promise to Israel and they sought to take control of the land themselves, a land that was not theirs to possess. It's not theirs now. And as a result, God was going to punish them. That's what we studied in Ezekiel 36 this evening. But understand, from what I just read there from Genesis 13, this is a literal land that he could see north, south, east, and west. It was a land that he told Abraham to walk through and look at. It was a land that Moses was carried up on the mountain and given a glimpse of before the children of Israel entered. You know, Moses was not allowed to enter, but it was a literal land. And God told Abraham that he would give his descendants this land forever. That's not my word. That's God's word that he made there. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. In Genesis chapter 15, after explaining to Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for some 400 years, here's what God told Abraham. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is, this is a very specific land with specific boundaries here. Now... Understand, because of their own failure and unfaithfulness, they have never possessed the entire land, ever. 
They were not faithful. That's been clear in Ezekiel. God was faithful. And they were on and on, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, they were the unfaithful wife while God was the ever-faithful husband. They never even possessed this land after the Babylonian captivity. I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me go back. And right, I want to go back to what I started with this evening, back to, the, back to the classroom. A literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. What is this text saying? Who was it spoken to? How would the author and the audience, for that matter, receive this? Well, this was spoken by Ezekiel to Jewish captives in Babylon. And so if it was to be fulfilled, it would be after that, at the, at the very least, after the Babylonian captivity. But this was not fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity. And all you have to do is go read the history in Scripture. of That returning generation and any generation of Jews after that was anything but faithful. How do we know? Again, the answers are found in the Bible. If you're familiar with the books... Ezra, Nehemiah, historical books, uh, the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You know the Jews were heavily persecuted when they got back over there to the land. And they never reigned and controlled that land. Not only that, this may be the worst part. That generation that returned, in fact I should say that little bitty small remnant that returned, because it's just a fraction of the Jews in Babylon that returned, they were anything but faithful. How do we know? Because God had to send them Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and tell them, get busy and do the things that I told you to do. And that's where the Old Testament closes. They're still having prophets sent to them to tell them, build my house and stop building your own houses. Well, when the New Testament opens up, the nation of Israel is no better off. I dare say they are worse off when the New Testament opens. Herod, a descendant of Esau, an Edomite, the very group we studied last week in chapter 35. An Edomite is reigning over Israel. And Rome is controlling him. The Jews had little governing authority despite the freedoms they did enjoy. I mean, they were right in the middle of the Pax Romana. There was freedom as far as that goes during this age, but they had no governing authority. And let's not forget, that is the generation of Jews that rejected their own Davidic king, the Messiah, Jesus. Right? They have not had what we read about here in Ezekiel 36. It hasn't happened because they've yet to be faithful. So if these words have meaning, literally, grammatically, historically, they were preached to a nation, Israel, that has yet to receive them. What did Jesus think? Well, here's what Jesus said in Luke 21. They, the Jews, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus knew they weren't enjoying this, right? The Apostle Paul similarly writes, 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there is this, there's this expiration date for Gentile control of the promised land. And it is when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, or as Paul puts it, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So neither, neither Jesus or Paul saw Ezekiel 36, 1 through 15 fulfilled in their day. The land is still controlled by the Gentiles. The Jews are not enjoying peace and prosperity and abundance at this time. And in fact, they remained very unfaithful. The enemies of their own Messiah. It doesn't get much worse than that. To add to that, the fact that they were dispersed once more, once more in A.D. 70 is pretty obvious proof that they have not retained control of the land forever. By the way, did you know that those same neighbors spoken of in Ezekiel took part in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I know we have this idea that it was you know, millions of Roman soldiers that sailed over there from Italy, but that's not how armies worked back in that day. There were Roman soldiers for sure. There were even Roman soldiers camped out in Jerusalem, but what they did is they picked up different regiments from the countries that they conquered. You may find this interesting. A man by the name of Publius Cornelius Tacitus, I know Lane's been reading his volumes, He's a historian of the Roman Empire. He wrote this of the army that ransacked Israel. Here's what he said, quote, This force was accompanied, this force being the Romans, was accompanied by a strong contingent of Arabs who hated the Jews with the usual hatred of their neighbors, end quote. Those enemies are still attacking them, even when the Romans walked in there. This is a quote from Josephus concerning the fire at the Jewish temple when it burned down in A.D. 70. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian. Here's what he writes. Quote, And now a person came running to Titus. That's the general of the Roman army that Brian named his child after. <laughs> and now a certain person came running to Titus and told him of this fire whereupon he rose up in great haste, and as he was, ran to the holy house, listen to this, in order to have a stop put to the fire. The Romans wanted to stop the fire. Titus wanted to stop the fire. After him followed all his commanders, and after them followed the several legions in great astonishment, so that there was a great clamor and tumult raised, and was natural upon the disorderly motion of so great an army. There was this disorderly part of the army. He goes on, Then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice, and by giving a signal to them with his right hand, order them to quench the fire of the temple. Titus, supposing what the fact was that the house itself might yet be saved, came in haste and endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire. Yet were their passions, those Arabian, Middle Eastern enemies of the Jews, yet were their passions too hard for the regards they had for Caesar, 
They hated the Jews more than they respected Caesar. And thus was the holy house burnt down without Caesar's approbation. End quote. It's pretty interesting because you know you have this picture of the Romans walking in to Jerusalem and just wiping them off the map when in fact Titus and Caesar are trying to save the temple and it's all of these Arabs that have hated the Jews for generation after generation after generation that went against Caesar's uh, instructions and burn it down. That strong contingent of Arabs who had this deep-seated hatred of the Jews. The same hatred we see of Israel in the Middle East today was present in the days of Ezekiel. It was present in the days of Jesus. It was present in the days after Jesus. And the Jews were scattered. Nevertheless, even in our day, God is using the salvation of Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Paul says those exact words in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Listen, a biblical text doesn't mean what it never meant. That sounds simple. A biblical text doesn't mean what it never meant. Ezekiel 36 is not being fulfilled in the church. That really doesn't even make sense, at least to me, and not literally, grammatically, and historically. Nobody reading this text 2,500 years ago would have thought that. Ezekiel would have been shocked at that interpretation. The church is not promised land, despite what Joel Osteen and his kind preach, Christians today are not promised prosperity. But look, a literal, grammatical, historical approach to Ezekiel 36, 1 through 15 will lead you to believe that Israel's conversion and restoration is still yet future in our day. When we surrender to the text, allowing it to form our thoughts and opinions, this is where we will arrive. Now let me offer this too. Maybe I should have said it earlier. The New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament. It just completes the book. Right. In fact, when New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, guess what type of hermeneutic they use? Literal, grammatical, historical. They take it just as it reads. Same with our Lord. That alone should be enough for us to approach Scripture that way. All right, I said all that to say... This, before we close this evening, I want to ask this question, what is the problem now? Why isn't Israel on their land today? Or at least fully occupying their land today? Maybe I should say that. Well, for a lot of the answers to that, you're just going to have to wait because the rest of this chapter actually bears that out. But I will say this, there is a prerequisite regeneration and conversion that the nation must experience before they can enter into the blessings God has promised to them. Listen, Israel will not receive these blessings through the keeping of the old covenant law. That has been tried and tried again, and it has failed at every turn. Israel will only receive these blessings through the repeatedly promised and completed now in our day, new covenant 
which in Old Testament passages for telling it, always includes language promising that Israel would be restored to her land. Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, all of those contain the promise that Israel will be restored to her land and will believe by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not through the Old Covenant law. So from our perspective, they must repent of their murder of the Messiah King and turn to Him by faith. I'll, just, I'll close with these words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 3. Here's when he's preaching to the Jews, here's what Peter says to the Jews. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore. And he's speaking to them specifically about repenting of what they did to Jesus. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ. Now Jesus already come, but He's coming back. That He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophet long ago. But Peter still saw unfulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. Prophecies that will not be fulfilled until the nation of Israel repents and turns to Jesus in faith. And that will only happen when God brings them to faith. And by the way, Ezekiel is just one of those holy prophets from long ago that Peter had in mind right here in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Even Ezekiel 36, 1 through 15. Stand with me if you will. Blake, we...